0: Let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again to uh, share Holy Scripture and uh, to help us to understand and explain not so much uh, the historical part of it, but what it is that you are trying to tell us through the uh, prophets. So help us to open our mind and our hearts to really Soak in what is, uh, the Holy Spirit t- t- telling us through this uh, lecture series. So give us the strength and the grace, uh, to set aside our cares and uh, problems of the day and just open our minds and our hearts to you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus name. Welcome all. Uh, any new people that haven't been here before? Okay. Good. Uh, today we're going to <laughs> begin an air or, or a section or a passage, you might say, uh, that is a little uh, different. And I'm sure that uh, you found it somewhat, I think, confusing. I'm going to close this partway so that we don't blow away. Hmm? Well, is it cold in here? All right. <laughs> well, good morning. Well, the back door is open. We're going to leave that uh, or a little ventilation. Anyways, how many of you thought uh, why are we reading all of this stuff? It's all about wars and you know, one country against another. Anyone think about that or question that? (laughs) I've heard many people say I don't like reading the Old Testament or studying the Old Testament. There's too much war and violence. you all agree with that? Okay. Have you ever thought about how many times the United States has been in war? We're talking, you know, at least 500 years in the time period that we are studying here in uh, the time of Isaiah. In the last 350 years... America has been involved in 12 different major wars. French and Indian War, 1754. Revolutionary War, 1775. The War of 1812. Mexican-American War, 1846. American Civil War, 1861. Spanish-American War, 1898. World War One, 1917, World War Two, 1941, Korean War, 1950, Vietnam War, Iraq twice, and Afghanistan. So, things haven't changed much, have they? We haven't learned much. Again, one of the problems that people have when they open up the Bible to study, they thought, there's just too much war. I'm not going to. Ah, I'm not going to read this. It's too violent. What they are missing, what they are not doing, is looking behind the scenes as to what is God doing in all of this. And that's a question we should often ask ourselves when we are in the midst of uh, some turmoil or some. A serious problem that we can't seem to see our way out. Do we take it to God in prayer and say, Lord, what are you doing in this? What is going on here? What am I supposed to be learning out of this? And that is what we want to look at today. What is God doing during the time of Isaiah with all of these nations fighting against each other? And it hasn't changed much because they're still fighting. You'd think they were, it was the same war going on over there today uh, because it's the same people fighting against the same neighbors, whatever. Okay. But there is a point. There is something behind this, at least at the time of Isaiah. I don't know about today. I haven't still figured that out. What are those people trying to do over there? Uh, Each one is trying to get their own way. uh, And I don't think any of them are united in what that way is supposed to be. But God has a way, at least in the time of Isaiah. And that's what we really want to look at. Okay? I want to get into going over some of the details. And then hopefully... If we uh, can, we'll bring it together. On page 45 in chapter 13, this section is entitled Oracles Against Foreign Nations. Now, what is an oracle? An oracle really is a pronouncement that is generally a warning. Uh, it's uh, something that is supposed to tell you uh, that there is danger up ahead. So that's what an oracle is in this sense. You have the other idea of the oracles, for example, the oracles of Delphi in Greek mythology. Uh, But there again, most of those were also uh spirits who were supposed to be warning the people ahead of time. On page 45 in the commentary there are some interesting points here. I'm not going to read all of the scripture because hopefully you've already read that. Okay. But there's some points right in the center of page 45 that I'd like to go over. It says the oracles against the nations are an expression Of ancient Israel's belief that God would never permit these nations to destroy Israel completely and that is true this goes back to the promise that God made to David and to his descendants that he would protect them and make sure that there was always a descendant of David on the throne of Judah. But there were conditions that were attached to that. There are always conditions. And those conditions really were uh, <coughs> allegiance to God and to being faithful to the covenant that he made with them, beginning all the way back with Abraham. It goes on to say, in this page 45, well, God has chosen to use these nations, that is, Assyria, Syria, Egypt, Moab, and so forth, um, as judge, to bring judgment upon the Israelite kingdoms for their failure to maintain a just society. God will move against these nations for their failures as well. I'm going to explain that a little later because it's important that you see what is going on not only here, but even today. God's judgment of the nations will mean salvation for Israel now that might seem unfair in a way if we look at it just uh, from a, a, a pure cause and effect point of view why should God punish nations in order to help Israel well what is happening here? is that these nations are threatening God's plan of salvation, which he is trying to develop in and through this nation of Israel. And when I'm saying Israel, I'm including Judah also. Remember, at this time, uh, the nation of Israel was divided into two separate and distinct kingdoms. One called Israel and the other called Judah. Don't forget that because they're vitally important. Israel was the largest, but Judah was the most important because it was the center uh, where Jerusalem existed and Jerusalem was God's holy city. An important point to keep in mind. Okay. So God is using these nations of Syria, Assyria, and Israel against Judah in a way. And that is where Ahaz, the king Ahaz, comes in. And the uh, prediction that was made, which we discussed last week... (coughs) You're having two nations join together and they are asking a third to join with them to fight against the aggressor Assyria. Now Assyria, which was made up of the people from current Iran and Iraq, was the predecessor to the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians, okay, but they didn't last very long. They were eventually conquered by the Babylonians later on. The point that is being made here in chapter 13 and throughout chapter 13 through uh, chapters 27, I believe it is, those are all oracles adi- against various nations that are plundering or devising uh, various forms of plunder against Israel and or Judah, all right, but much of these were written long after 1st Isaiah, so you wonder, well, why is this being put into this particular part of the book of Isaiah, if these things happened so much later. Frankly, we don't know. All right. That is the way the book has come down uh, to us all the way from the Greek translation in the second century. But there is a point in a way that we can at least uh, rationalize in our minds and make some sense of it. if we go uh, the whole idea of uh, the next section Babylon the oracle against Babylon uh, if they're talking about Babylon at this point in time then we know that this was written long afterwards because Assyria was conquered by Babylon, and therefore, if it's talking about the uh, the demise or the eventual demise of Babylon, this is, we're talking really about something that happened in the latter part of the sixth century B.C. Okay, because Babylon was conquered um, by the Persians and the Medes in around the year 543 B.C. Um, Babylon conquered Judah in 587 B.C. Assyria conquered Israel in 722 B.C. So you see there's a number of years difference. So we've got to kind of dismiss in our minds the time sequence and just try to figure out what is God doing here? What is the whole ultimate purpose of this? And the ultimate purpose really is to make sure that Judah continues to exist and not be wiped out because that was the instrument that God set up through which he was going to bring his plan of salvation to a climax. And that climax, that important point is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we're talking of course five, six 600, 700 years before Christ, but God's plan of salvation started way back with Abraham. Actually, it was in existence right from the beginning of creation. But it really started to be implemented with Abraham. And little by little, God developed a small nation, Israel, from this family of Abraham. And the purpose was really to develop traditions and customs and through the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses, a beginning of a written uh, law structure that could be understood and followed by the average individual. As time goes on, that is developed through the people of Israel, primarily through Judah, the more conservative of the the two nations, all right? The plan of salvation continues on, even beyond all of that time, even to this day if we think about the wiping out of some of these nations, we constantly, I'm sure, have in our mind, how cruel is God? But we've got to also remember that God has promised that anyone that dies for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel will experience eternal life in heaven. Christ has said that in several places within the Gospels. So yes, in this wiping out of the Assyrians and then eventually the Babylonians we might, I'm sure that there were good people that were wiped out along with the bad. But they will be blessed because they were part of of this whole idea of implementing and furthering God's plan of salvation, which still continues today. We often think of, well, if God's plan of salvation ended with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, uh, what more is there? But it didn't end there. St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, he says, I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, very indignant. How could anything be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? You know. But when you study the meaning and the purpose of the message in total proper context, it means that each one of us has a role in God's plan of salvation. And we must fulfill that role in order to enjoy eternal life with him in heaven. And how do we fulfill that? It's different for each one of us. Each one of us should spend time in prayer Asking God for his guidance and direction in understanding our individual role in his plan of salvation. Because, as Paul tells us, there wasn't anything deficient in what Jesus did. It was that he left the door open for each of us to participate. Remember, we talked about partners in the first Meeting, I believe it was. How God has had partners throughout history. Beginning again with Abraham and the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to some degree Joseph. Then the judges came along. And now the prophets. And then later as the prophets fade out, we have the high priest form of faith through the Jewish people. And then later on, the church. These are all God's partners. But remember, we make up the church. If it wasn't for us, there wouldn't need to be a Rome or a hierarchy of any kind. We make up the church. And therefore, we have a part in this overall plan. And our part in general, collectively, is to help each other find their role and help them fulfill it so that we can all rise up to heaven together. Remember, even way back, the Jewish people were formed to be a nation who would live in peace and harmony with each other and sort of reflect that form of love, God's love to, through themselves, but to other nations. Unfortunately, they didn't see it that way. And you have this constant battle between God and the Jewish people of their wanting to worship God, but In their way, not his way, their way. And they developed themselves into a very exclusive community, an exclusive nation, and did not want to go out and reflect their teachings, their customs, their traditions, their laws, their religion to others. That was something that they held very personal. In fact, they forbid marrying into other religions or other nations, uh, other forms of, of communities. Uh, they would not invite people into themselves. They do now, but they didn't for centuries. Uh, and to some degree, they still <coughs> are doing things you might say the good good things but for the wrong reason. They're not doing it for the sake of bringing other people in but rather to benefit themselves. And I'm not saying that in, a, in a, to imply anything selfish. I really feel sorry myself for the Jewish people because they are lacking or they're missing out on some of the great benefits that God would love to shower upon them. They are still blessed in many ways. They are the foundation of Christianity. And that is why we study Scripture that came to us through the Jewish people. The Old Testament, that is. And it's important that we kind of understand and therefore, we have no right to criticize. We should feel sorry for it. Let's let us go on. On page forty-six, in the scripture portion, beginning with verse nineteen, it says. And Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory and pride of the Chaldeans, shall become like Sodom and Gomorrah, overthrown by God. It shall never be inhabited, nor dwelt in from age to age. And that is true. It has never been, once it was destroyed by the Persians and the Medes and the Persians, it has never been used or... um, inhabited since then because it was one of the major persecutors of the Jewish people. Now, you might say, well, that seems to be sort of out of balance. But that's God's way. These people at this particular time period were cruel and vicious people. All of them were. And it was, you know, who's in control? Who's got the upper hand? And it was always God had the upper hand. Right? But if you think about it, it's not only Babylon that has been destroyed and never to uh, be inhabited again because of its cruelty to the Jewish people. But you have even cities within Israel, that went through the same kind of thing. Jesus himself condemns three different cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, uh, for doing the same thing. And those three cities have never been inhabited since the time of Christ. Sodom and Gomorrah are another ones. Egypt to a lesser degree, has never been a major power since the Israelites were released from Egypt with the hand of Moses. So any nation that has treated Israel or Judah wrongly, imprisoned them, persecuted them, or whatever, has suffered the same fate by the hand of God. There's time after time, there's even more, but I, I don't want to get too uh, carried away with that. Mm. On, in chapter 14, to back up what I've just said, it says, Um, but the Lord will take pity on Jacob and again choose Israel and will settle them on their own land foreigners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob the house of Jacob is sort of a euphemism for meaning Judah in itself the nations uh, will take them and bring them to their place The house of Israel will possess them as male and female slaves on the Lord's land, and they will take uh, captive their captors and rule over their oppressors. In other words, Israel is constantly being favored by God, coddled by God, you might say, because it is the, let's put it this way, in the long run, and in the climax event of God's plan, Judah and Jerusalem are the location or the city of redemption. Does that ring a bell? Does that make sense? Jerusalem is the city of redemption, the place where Christ's passion, death, And resurrection took place. Little wonder then. That God is protecting. Judah. And Jerusalem. However. We found that. 70 years later. Even Jerusalem. Was destroyed. And the temple along with it. Why? Because the Jewish people again rejected God in the form of Jesus Christ. After 2,000 years of coddling these people and protecting them, warning them, chastising them in many ways, but yet always holding out the hand of forgiveness In spite of the patriarchs, the judges, the prophets, and great people such as King David and Elijah and Elisha and some of the others, the Jewish people still did not obey God and become the light to other nations as God wanted them to be. And in fact, when God Himself stood in front of them in the form of Jesus Christ, they rejected Him. Now we'll get into more of that as we get into Part Two of the Book of Isaiah, which won't be until next spring. All right, Uh, because chapters uh, 40 through 66, the second half of this book, get more into the predictions of the Messiah. But I want you to see kind of where are we going with all of this? Why are we studying all of these wars and the, um, you know, some of the, the gory parts, you might say? Because there is a point that is being made, uh, and that point is the development of God's plan of salvation. And we'll talk about this constantly because that's what's behind all of us. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have the prophets. You see, even though these people were worshipping false gods, worshipping other things, rather than God himself, and they were doing things that were totally against the commandments and against the law of God, God constantly held out his hand begging them to come back to him. In fact, that's one of the great words that is used in the book of uh, the prophet Hosea and the song that we get in church, come back to me with all your heart, etc. Those are words right out of the book of Hosea. And God is constantly trying to get these people to come back and see what he is trying to do not only for them, but through them. Okay. And they reject. They constantly reject because they want to do things their way. They developed these customs and traditions that were gradually absorbed into their religious observances. They were not religious laws to begin with. But, nevertheless, it was they who made them religious laws. And God said, all right, if you are going to make that a religious law, then I'm going to hold you against it. If you don't fulfill your own laws, then I'm going to hold you against that. And that's what he's done. When Christ comes along later on, And fulfills so much of the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly the prophecies of 2nd Isaiah. You would think that even though he didn't look like what they were expecting as a Messiah, he didn't come in as a knight on a white horse and, you know, in shining armor, and get rid of all the Romans. He, he was this average-looking person, you know, the kind of an itinerant preacher, itinerant preacher from Nazareth. And Nazareth, you know, is a little big town up in the north. But if they listened to what he said and checked it out with their own writings, they couldn't possibly have missed if they had really a true and open mind they couldn't possibly have missed and yet because he didn't measure up to what they wanted in a messiah they totally rejected him and along with the other prophets they crucified right Almost all of the prophets were crucified or murdered in some way. Okay. Because the Jewish people did not like the message. So, they murder the messenger. Down at the bottom of page 47 it says, The prophet uses a type of hyperbole that often appears in biblical texts With a high emotional content. Hyperbole in this case. Is we would probably say. For better understanding. uh, Gross exaggeration. And that's true. You will find that throughout the Old Testament. And to some degree. In the New Testament. They didn't have other ways. Particularly in the written word to underscore or underline. You know, they didn't have highlights like I have here. Uh, And so their form of making sure the point got across was either exaggeration or repetition. And you'll see that quite often in Jewish scripture. Exaggeration or repetition. So you've got to be very careful when you find something that is a little bit more than sounds realistic. It probably isn't. Okay. Says the uh, reading again. The prophet uses a type of exaggeration that often appears in biblical text with a high emotional content. The poem he is trying to revive. I'm sorry. The poem that he's got here is trying to revive the spirit of the Judahite community that was devastated by the fall of Jerusalem. Now this is the first fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. The destruction of the temple, and the destruction of the temple was the destruction of God's presence within them. The temple to them was more than a building where they worshipped. The temple was a symbol of God's presence among them. And to them, God was for them only. God was not the God of those nations around. And then even to the time of Christ, they got to the point where the temple was, was where God was, but whatever happened outside the temple was none of God's business. Okay? Which, of course, is a gross blasphemy. Sure. <clears throat> but I uh, make a point of it when they talk about the destruction of the temple where they're talking about the first destruction of the temple of solomon which was in 587 uh bc by the babylonians okay and that is when the ark of the covenant was destroyed as well remember the ark of the covenant was a symbol uh, again of the this was the first symbol of god's presence among his people and it was uh built uh by god's command to moses At the time of wandering in the desert. And it was a fancy big box. Made out of very. uh, Precious wood. Covered with uh, gold inlay. And all of that stuff. And contained the. uh, Ten commandments. Or the Xerox copy. And. It contained jars of the manna. And the staff of Aaron. That you know part of the Red Sea. And this was carried Around as God's symbol among the Jewish people for a thousand years. And there's a little story in the first, I think, first book of Samuel about how it got captured by the Philistines and was carted off and uh, what happened by going back and forth. There's a kind of a funny little story in there. Uh, and then the way it ended was every time it, landed in a little town of some kind of the Philistines Uh, that town was devastated by uh, some event so eventually they realized that the presence of this ark was bad news so they wanted to get rid of it Uh, so the way they got rid of it was they put it on a horse drawn cart and whipped the horse so that it would beat itself down the road to the Jewish people and that's how they got it back. It's a, it's a cute little story. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. You know, but it, but it's funny. Okay, and of course it was come, it was brought back and continued, and it was in a temp uh, a tent. It was housed in a special tent uh, for centuries until Solomon built uh, the glorious temple in Jerusalem. And then it was housed in the Holy of Holies. All right. So this was around the year 950 B.C. And it existed in that temple and in the Holy of Holies down to 587 B.C. when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, and its contents were also destroyed. Uh, On the next page, uh, from the previous page, it says, Many of the exiles accommodated themselves to the new realities. The prophet insists that Babylon has no future and implies that its fall is a harbinger of a new future for Judah. And, of course, we had talked about that before. Every time a nation overpowers Israel or Judah, particularly Judah, uh, they themselves experience um, annihilation at a later point. The word harbinger generally means a prediction of uh, bad things to come. And one of our Uh, members here asked me because they said there was a new book out entitled Harbinger and it talks about the United States uh, experiencing some of the same things because we are headed down the same road and in some ways I have to agree but I'm not so sure that I would say that uh, that's a prediction of what's going to happen to the United States. But I think in many ways, our government and our society is leading us down the same road um, to a pagan society. Okay. Uh, we are getting further and further away from honoring God as our founding fathers did. Most of our, the founding fathers were Christians and their belief in God and in Jesus Christ is embedded in all the major uh, documents that form our, um, our nation, you know, the Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights and so forth and so on. Uh, but we're getting so far away from uh, obeying that and honoring that, that we are eventually sliding down the slope to uh, apostasy you might say. Yes, Arita? Is the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, are they declining as well? Yes. They are. Yes. Yes. Uh, Rita just asked, are the Jewish people declining in the same way as Americans are? And the answer is yes. And part of that example is that they have broken into several um, smaller uh, factions you might say groups. Three major groups of course you know are the conservative reform and the conservative reform uh, hmm? no no conservative uh, reform and orthodox no 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 the, the conservative. Oh right you're right. Orthodox conservative and reform. Those are the three major groups, but also within the Orthodox you have the Ashkenazi and the Hasidic groups, and you see they're beginning to break down like Christianity has, from those people who departed from the Roman Catholic Church and set up other faiths, and now we have umpteen you know, almost an countless number of Christian denominations okay uh, that have broken away from the mother church, the Roman Catholic faith. Okay. Um, it, in this book here, coming back, because I, I don't want to get into politics and so forth, but I think that we can't avoid uh, generalities here. Yeah? The fall of Babylon makes Judah's restoration possible. Why? And that is because of the promise of God that a small remnant will return from Babylon to begin the nucleus uh, of restoration for the Jewish nation. The prophet elaborates on this reversal of fortunes as he taunts Babylon. He asserts that the exile will be reversed. Instead of the people of Israel being led off to Babylon as slaves, the Babylonians will be led to the land of Israel to serve the community restored to its native land. Uh, but then that never happened. And I, as it says here, uh, the prophet is becoming carried away uh, by his own rhetoric. Right. So there again, you got to be a little careful uh, when things seem to be uh, a little bit exaggerated one way or the other. You have the next is the parable against uh, Assyria. Assyria, as I said, was overpowered by the uh, Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and eventually disappeared as a superpower. But it was the Assyrians, and I think we've already talked about this to some degree, it was the Assyrians who conquered northern Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel, and carted off most of those that would do them some good and took them to Assyria and brought back or forced back a lot of the um, Ne'er do wells, the, the jailbirds, the infirm, that kind of thing, into, Assyria, into Samaria of northern Israel. And they became the Samaritans that were so disliked at the time of Christ. Okay. And why were they disliked? Again, it's because. The Jewish people refused to embrace other nations and welcomed them in if they participated in the Jewish faith. The Samaritans were shunned because they were not born Jews. Period. And over of almost 700 years from the time of that event to the time of Christ, Things didn't change. It's interesting that after Christ died and rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and the disciples and they were told then to go out and preach the gospel to all nations. It was Samaria was the first one they went to. There's a story in the Acts of the Apostles where the disciple, the deacon Philip uh, goes down and meets the uh, the eunuch, the slave uh, of the queen of Candace. So, It's interesting how things change. On page 52. There's a paragraph here in the commentary. Right in about the middle. But again. The remnant. There will be a small and weak remnant left of what was once a significant regional power. Of course, the remnant of Judah will be the instrument that God will use to restore Jerusalem. I want to kind of emphasize this because uh, I have, the word got back to me Not necessarily recently, but from time to time over the years, that I get carried away with some of my own teachings and inject my own uh, personal views. And what I try to do as much as possible is to support what I'm telling you by various texts. Okay. So that I'm not the only one that thinks that way. All right. Okay. Okay. But it doesn't bother me. I've heard it all. Okay. Uh, let's go to page 53. At the top of the page, right of the, on the right side, it says, uh, and this is uh, verse uh, 7. On that day, people shall turn to their maker, that is God, Their eyes shall look to the Holy One of Israel. This is a favorite phrase uh, or title, you might say, that Isaiah alone uses uh, for God. The Holy One of Israel. But there again, it almost implies that it is only Israel that God is interested in. That's not correct. God is interested in all mankind. But he uses certain people to implement what he's trying to do. They shall not turn to the altars, the work of their own hands, nor shall they look to what their fingers have made the Asherahs, or the incense stands. On that day, his strong cities shall be like those abandoned by the Hivites, or Amorites. When faced with the Israelites, and there shall be desolation. Truly you have forgotten the God who saved you. The rock, your refuge, you have not remembered. And therefore, though you plant Plants for the pleasant one, and set out cuttings for a foreign one. Though you make them grow, the day you plant them, and make and make them blossom, the morning you set them out, the harvest shall disappear on a day of sickness and incurable pain. All oh, the roaring of many peoples, a roar like the roar of the seas, the thundering of nations. Thundering like the thundering of mighty waters. But God shall rebuke them. And they shall flee far away. Driven like chaff on the mountains before a wind. Like tumbling weed before a storm. Again, you might say, the prophet is getting a little bit carried away with some of this. But the basic is still true. Down in the commentary part, it says, what the people of Judah expected from their God. You see, they're constantly asking and expecting God to come through and do what they want. But there is no uh, submission of their will to him. What the people of Judah expected from their God was fertility for the land and protection from enemies. They sought these, not only from the Lord, their uh, patron deity, but from other gods as well. You see, they're trying to straddle both sides of the fence. And God is not buying it. Here, the prophet mentions the trappings of non-Yahwistic worship. Non-Yahwistic, meaning Yahwistic is the sort of euphemistic word of the faith that Moses that stemmed from the Ten Commandments uh, and the laws that Moses had set up. Okay. The alien God of verse 10 is like Tammuz, a God connected with grain production. In other words, they are looking and they constantly looked at other nations. And always wanted to be like the other nations. And God did not want that. God wanted them to embrace the other nations. For the purpose of showing. What loving people these Jewish uh, people were. Or Hebrew people at the time. Because they weren't called Jews. Alright. Right? Uh, and yet they constantly refused. To cooperate. It's true when you look at some of the other writings of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms, alright? Prayers of various lengths and uh, many different subjects. Only seven out of them, seven Psalms out of the 150 are called penitential Psalms. In other words, Psalms that uh, actually talk about uh, asking God's forgiveness for their sins and uh, offering uh, a correction of their own ways. All right, Psalm 51 is one of, to me, the most beautiful of all of those and would suffice for an act of contrition at any time. But 7 out of 150 is a very small number. Almost all of the others are gimme prayers. Lord, give me this, give me that, give me something else, you know. Uh I want this, I want that, I want protection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But nothing about I will do this in return. I will love you forever, I will be faithful, or anything of that kind. So that's what they're saying here. Is they tried to straddle the fence by worshiping both the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, but on the side they were also, you know, invoking uh, the pagan gods of the nations around them. So you can see they're kind of setting up, in a way, their own doom. Okay. How unfortunate! How unfortunate! Okay. Uh, we have some more here, but I want to go over to page fifty six. Page fifty six and at the very bottom in the right corner of page fifty six it says and continued on to the page fifty seven. Says the prophet believe that God determines the course of events. Amen. The plans that people make are worthless. Well, not entirely, but let's go on. God will bring about an end to the Assyrian Empire, and yes, he did. But it will come when God chooses. What Judah must do is wait for a sign that God will begin. To move against the Assyrians. The victory that God will effect Will lead the conspirators. To Jerusalem. To bring a tribute. To God. To Judah's God. What Judah must do. Is wait. But did it. No. That's the result. Of Ahaz. Rejecting. Isaiah's plea to not get involved with Assyria, Ahad decides that he's not going to accept that or the offer that Isaiah makes about the prediction of the child to be born of a young woman and named Emmanuel. So what does he do? He goes out and he makes an alliance with Assyria. And that, of course, angers the northern countries of Israel and Syria who have joined forces and so now you've got enemies and friends sort of fighting with each other. Uh, And of course that sets up the big battle that eventually wipes out both uh, Israel and Judah. says the prophet then becomes specific as he describes some of the signs of God's domination over Egypt. You see we have been talking about those nations north of Judah. But now there are other nations uh, Philistia which is to the southeast and Egypt which is to the southwest of Israel. Both of those have their eyes on Israel, not because uh, or eyes on Judah I should say, not because Judah is so important, but because they want their uh, they want a clear path you might say, uh, of domination right through to the Silk Road. There's kind of an interesting comment at the bottom of page uh, 57. It says, the prophets tried to persuade people not only with their eloquence, but also with their actions. And that's, of course, important for us. Uh, The dramatic gesture became an important part uh, of... Hmm. All right. All right. Excellent. The, the, the dramatic gesture became an important part of the prophetic repertoire Hosea married a prostitute Jeremiah purchased land during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem Ezekiel kept silence for seven and a half years eclipsing them all was Isaiah's three year Three-year period of nudity. Mm. The purpose of this gesture was to dramatize the futility of the anti-Assyria machinations encouraged by Egypt. The prophet wanted everyone to see, mm. yeah, um, to see what would happen to the Egyptians when Assyria moved against them. They will be. I don't know how that would. That would be so distracting I wouldn't think about anything else, you know. They will be carried off into slavery without any clothes to cover their shame. Now, it's interesting how in this time period, nakedness was far more serious, uh, a shameful act, or a degrading act, than virtually anything else. Shame was extremely uh, repugnant to the Jewish people and nakedness uh, was the ultimate. The Egyptians encouraged the Philistine city-state state, city state of Ashdod, which was located on the Mediterranean coast 29 miles south of, of Jaffa. What is Jaffa today? Hmm? Haifa. Yeah. Well, but it's a suburb of Tel Aviv. Yes. To rebels against the Assyria, the territory of Ashdod became incorporated into the Assyrian provincial state in 734 B.C. when Sargon the second, came to put down the rebellion with overwhelming force. The Egyptians throughout the thought the better of challenging him and simply abandoned Ashdod to its fate. The city fell to the Assyrian army in 713 BC. While Israel's advice to Judah was sound and that was to lay low and don't do anything, Syria never conquered Egypt. And Assyria never conquered Jerusalem as well. Okay. Any questions? No questions at all? My goodness. The is around Yes. And Aram, was that Syria? Yes. Now, you got to be careful. Aram is Syria, not Assyria. you got two different countries. Syria is basically the same as Syria today. Assyria was the two countries that are on the other side of Syria today. Iran and Iraq. Yeah. And, of course... That was what. After Assyria, it was then Babylonia, and then after Babylonia was conquered uh, by the Medes and Persians, and then they were conquered by the Greeks, so it became part of the Greek Empire. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Are you understanding this? Any problems? Does it make sense? (laughs) Yes, Chet. Chet is asking here is what's new? Uh, What is any different today than it was uh, at the time of Isaiah because of the infighting between nations and within nations uh, that's going on in the Mideast today. And it's really all over the same thing. They want their way Rather than God's way. Yes, but we know that that isn't possible because God would not, God wouldn't, I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, well, well I'm not so sure about that. Uh, that's not possible. You can't have all of the killing and so forth that's going on and say that that's God's way. They have to have something behind what they are doing to prove that it's God's way. The people here at least had prophets. But they didn't obey the prophets. The prophets tried to warn them. But who is trying to tell the people in Egypt, in Syria, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, all of those people are trying to develop their own government, but in the wrong way. Unfortunately, you cannot force democracy. Those people have never experienced democracy and you just cannot force it on me. Susan, you had a question? Assyria. Assyria, yes. What is um, the Babylonian Empire? What? was the same, 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 same group. Assyria. Yes. Yes. Same area. Yes. That's right. Keeps getting stirred up over and over. Yes, that's what D is. That's what D is saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. If you if you look well, the pages aren't marked, but yes, there's some very nice uh, maps here in in the back, and. It talks about Assyria and many different, you know, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and then, of course, it became the Greek Empire, and then it became the Roman Empire. Afterwards. uh, We talked a lot about about God's plan when these so-called ne'er-do-wells were brought back to Samaria. God and his prophecies with, with pure people like the lepers, and only one came back and it was in the Samaritan. The good Samaritan He's trying to perhaps give us an example of how we should treat those that we think are. That's right, yes. Yes. Uh, Love sh- should know no boundaries. And you might say, well, when you see a homeless person on the street or, or somebody begging somewhere, you cannot say, well, they got what they deserved or, you know, they, how do I know that that person isn't, doesn't live in a mansion down the street or something? That's not up to you to make that decision. If those people are Doing things under false pretenses, God will take care of that. But it's important. Um, one time I was standing outside the uh, music center, down uh, the community center down town Sacramento, and waiting for uh, a, a ride that was being arranged. And a homeless person came to me and said that he needed five dollars to go to get a room. He had enough money for the rest of it, but he needed five more dollars to get a room for the night. And I gave him five dollars, and there was a lady sitting there, not part of the party I was with. I said, I would never have done that. And I said, there but for the grace of God, go on. That kind of shut her up, and, you know, it, it sort of did what had to be done. You cannot make a judgment on how or why a certain person is in the desperate need that they are in. That's not up to you to make that decision. If you can help them, you are obligated to do so. And that's part of our Christian heritage. And the thing is, we should not hold that within us. You often hear people say, well, the one thing you don't talk about In mixed company is religion and taxes. Um, Taxes I can understand, but uh, religion is something that you are really obligated. God wants you to go out and spread the good news. Doesn't mean that you have to beat the drums and go down to, you know, the corner and preach, Uh, but where you have an opportunity. It is your obligation. You can't withdraw and just say, well, I'm not well-versed in my faith and therefore I, I don't want to show my ignorance. Uh, then you should do something about curing that ignorance so that you can go out. Because we have an obligation that is part of our being a light to the nations. One of the major documents within Vatican II It's called Lumen Gentium, which is Latin for the light of the nations. We, the church, the dogmatic constitution of the Catholic church, which is the English title of that same document, really is referring to the church, and we are the church, being a light to all the nations. Therefore, we can't sit back and say, well, It's not my place. I'm not educated. I don't have this or that. Uh, You can do something. And so many people say, well, I'm so bored. Uh, Yesterday I was in a group of, of people not real close or personal friends, but I heard two people talking about all of the television programs that they were interested in. It was all of these sci-fi things, and you know the the junk. I always say that's on television today. And I thought, what a waste of time! What a waste of time! Because there's so much that could be done instead of sitting in front of the boob tube uh, for hours, uh, day after day after day, watching all these stupid programs. Uh, so see the time of the prophet Isaiah there was any wars going on between nations and God financed them that would involved those nations well there's nothing new with the same thing here then why is God not financing those people why is God oh well why does is not why is God not intervening well, I think they don't, God doesn't have to. They're killing themselves, you know. I always say, take them all out, move them all out to some desert and let them go to it, you know. Because that's that's being facetious. Uh, but God's hand is working one way or the other. We may not see it. These people did not see it. But he's working. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh June? Yes, yes, yes. June's point is well taken. Uh, we are in a period of evangelization, you know, the year of faith. Uh, the church since Vatican II has tried to break out of the mold that the Jewish people were in for centuries and turn it around to opening the door to spreading the faith rather than keeping it closed as we did for so many hundreds of years. Okay? And we're always afraid, or we were afraid to open the door because somebody might misinterpret it. Might, somebody might say something wrong, or somebody might make a mistake. Well, yeah, those things are going to happen sooner or later, but at least trying is far more important than sitting back and doing nothing. And that is what really it's all about. Any questions? Any more? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together to share and understand Scripture a little bit more. And we help us now we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to see where are we as individuals in your plan of salvation. And what is our role? What is it that you want us to do to further your idea of salvation and spreading the word, spreading the scripture word about the death and resurrection of your divine son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know our role, our limits, as well as our abilities, qualities, and commitments. So we ask your blessing on all of us. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.